0: We've been studying these psalms from Psalm 120, now today we're in 126, but they go on to Psalm 135. These are psalms of ascent. These were psalms that were sung as people went up to Jerusalem. And I wonder, what was your journey to church like today? What was it like as you came here to the deck building? I wonder how you felt as you arrived to church today I'm sure there were some of you that were glad who were excited to see friends and fellow church members maybe you were even singing on the way to church or excited at least to come and sing together perhaps you would describe yourself as rejoicing in the Lord as you came to church today if that describes you then praise God that's wonderful We're thrilled when people are rejoicing in the Lord. I'm so glad to hear of people feeling excited and joyful in the Lord. But I'm certain that for many of you, that was not the thing that described your arrival to church today. I'm sure for some of you, it was just hard to get in the car and drive to church today. Maybe you felt burdened. Maybe you felt weighed down from the week. Maybe you felt desperate. Maybe you even were tearful on your way to church today. I want you to know that if that describes you, or even if they weren't tears that came out, but you felt sorrowful in your heart, I'm so thankful that you made the effort to be here. I want to encourage you to keep doing that. If you feel sorrowful and broken on Fridays, I want to encourage you to come to church as much as you can. It can be hard to come to church when you feel like that. But I'm especially glad that you came today as we study this song, Psalm 126, because we'll find that it addresses both kinds of people. It addresses those who are joyful and it addresses those who are sorrowful. And hopefully it will serve each of you, maybe in different ways, but you will hopefully be blessed from God's word today. As I reminded you earlier, we've been dipping into these Psalms of Ascent, and these were songs for the road as God's people made their way to Jerusalem. There were festivals three times a year and they would travel and they would sing along the way. And this is one of the songs that they would sing year after year after year as they approached Jerusalem to worship God together. So please turn with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Psalm 126 and follow along as I read it aloud. Psalm 126. A song of ascent. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Like streams in the Negev, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his, sheave, his sheaves with him. This is God's Word. In this particular song, we see God's people singing. And they're singing about God's faithfulness to them in the past. But they're not just singing about God's faithfulness in the past. They're also asking him for his faithfulness once again. That's the point of Psalm 126. It's that God has and God will restore his people's fortunes. Now, to put that in a practical way for us, it's this. Remember God's restoration in the past and request God's restoration for the future. That's what these two stanzas are of this song. The two, it's a very short s- song, just two verses or stanzas. Verses 1 through 3 are a reminder. And verses 4 to 6 are Are a request. So let's look at these in turn. So verses 1 through 3, a reminder. The people singing on their way up to Jerusalem are first looking backwards in time. They're looking to the past. They say, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. So these people, God's people, were singing and remembering God's act in the past to restore the fortunes of Zion. Now, Zion was another name that was given for the capital city, Jerusalem, the place that they were heading. It was the place where God's temple was, where he dwelt in the midst of his people. Is another name for the city of David. There's lots of names given for Jerusalem in the Old Testament, and Zion is one of those. But this name, Zion, it came to represent not just the place, but it came to represent all of Israel, God's people. So you might be wondering, when did God restore Zion's fortunes? When is it that they're singing about? And I I think that part of the reason that there's not a lot of description of when he had done it, exactly how he did it, is because God had done this many times. If we look through the Old Testament, we'd find time and time again that God is faithful to restore his people's fortunes. And so we're not exactly sure of when this refers to, Perhaps they're thinking of God's incredible deliverance of Israel when they had been set free from captivity captivity and slavery in Egypt. When Moses had led the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. When they had arrived at the land God had promised to their forefather Abraham. That's possible. That certainly was one of the greatest examples of God acting on his people's behalf to rescue them and to restore them. But the same phrase, restore the fortunes, is used in a prophecy found in Deuteronomy chapter 30, in verse 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 30. If you look back there and look at the context... It's used about restoring the people when they had been taken into captivity, when they had been taken out of, out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, and had been taken away into slavery, not in Egypt, but in Babylon. And when Moses spoke these words in Deuteronomy chapter 30, it was even before they had entered the promised land. But he spoke about how the Israelites would be unfaithful to God. He said, once you get into the land, you will be unfaithful to God. Despite his extraordinary goodness to you, you're going to rebel against him. You're not going to remain faithful. You're going to be faithless. You're going to reject God as your king, as your leader. And as a result, there will be curses. Curses will fall upon you. There'll be curses on the land and on the produce, on the livestock, on their health, And well-being and ultimately on their security they would be conquered and they would be driven into slavery in this foreign land in Babylon earlier this year I I've been preaching from Daniel the book of Daniel and Daniel was one of these exiles that was taken and conquered and taken into Babylon but if you remember back even to the very first verses and chapters of the Bible Adam and Eve before them had had a similar fate Their disobedience had led to their breakdown of their relationship to God and difficulty in their work and their toiling for food and with the ground and ultimately being exiled from the place that God dwelt. So we see time and time again in the Old Covenant that the people's physical well-being, their health, their wealth, their security was tied intimately to their spiritual well-being. Their obedience and their faithfulness to God and so when God's people rebelled when they disobeyed when they were faithless it did not go well with them they lost their health they lost their wealth they lost their security when they were obedient when they were faithful to the Lord it would go well they would be strong they would be secure they'd be cared for but even in the midst of of being told that they would rebel and they would be unfaithful, God promised to remain faithful. He promised that he would restore them from the nations that they were taken, that he would bring them back home to Zion. And God always keeps his promises. And so Zion was restored. The captives returned from exile. They rebuilt Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. And when that happened, it was almost like living in a dream. Look at verse one. It was so hard to believe what had happened. It was too good to be true when God restored their fortunes. It was like when someone says to you, have you ever heard this phrase, pinch me? And it means like, pinch me, I might be dreaming. If you pinch me, it proves that I'm not dreaming because I'd wake up if you pinched me in a dream. It's as if They don't really believe what had happened, as if it was just a dream. And verses 2 and 3, they recount for us the reactions of God's people when they were restored. We're told their mouths were filled with laughter and their tongues with shouts of joy. When God graciously restores his people, it leads to laughter. It leads to songs of joy. That's why God's people have always been a singing people, even from the very beginning of the Bible. At the very beginning, when Adam was alone and God made Eve and brought her to him, what did he do? He burst into a song of praise to the Lord for the great thing that God had done for him. And even after that, when Moses led the people out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, when the waves came crashing down and destroyed their enemies, do you know what Moses did? He wrote a song. And all the people sang it together of the great things that God had done for them. And if you trace it through the Bible, you'll see time and time again, God's people respond with shouts of joy, with songs of gladness, with laughter to the great things that God has done. And so, Christians, we should be marked by joy. It's one of the slices of the fruit of the Spirit. Joy is grounded in God's goodness shown to us. And so we should be glad because God has been so good. He's been so faithful. He's done such great things for us. But, you know, part of the way that we increase our joy is by recounting what God has done for us. And that's why we sing every week here when we gather. That's why we just sang hallelujah for the cross. We're celebrating, rejoicing in what God did 2,000 years ago through the death and resurrection of his son. We're reminding ourselves of these great things. And we're reminding one another as well, not just ourselves, but we remind one another as we sing together of God's greatest act of restoring his people. A good news, a gospel that just almost seems too good to be true, but it is true. So let me give you a couple of ways to grow in your joy in the Lord that we see here in these verses. The first one is singing songs together or singing songs alone helps us to remember the great things that God has done for us. Songs have a way of sticking in our mind, don't they? I'm sure you your your brains are probably filled with the lyrics of a thousand songs some that you've not heard in 10 years songs help us to remember and recount God's good deeds to us and the Psalms are an ex- example of that 150 songs the longest book in the Bible songs for you to recount God's goodness sing songs about your salvation in Christ that will increase your joy and help you to fight to rejoice in the Lord Another way that we increase our joy in the Lord is sharing testimonies of God's grace. It might be weird to sing when you're hanging out in the coffee shop, but you can recount testimonies of what God has done for you. Share about how God in his grace has restored you. It might be the story of how you came to faith. How did God save you? Or it might be another testimony of A time that God intervened and restored your fortunes. Share some great things that God has done for you. Maybe even over dinner tonight if you're hanging out with members. Tell them about what God has done for you. But God has even designed a unique and special way that we are called to remember the great things that God has done for us. We're going to celebrate it at the end of our service today. The Lord's Supper is the church's celebration of the Lord restoring our fortunes through the death of Jesus Christ. When we take the Lord's Supper, as we take the bread that has been broken, as we drink the cup of red juice, we're reminded and we see vividly a beautiful picture of the great th- greatest thing that God has ever done for us. When we remember that the bread represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. When we remember his blood that was shed to wash away our sins, to forgive us, that he gave his life for us. The time that we take the Lord's Supper should be a glad and joyful time. As we remind ourselves of the great things that God has done for us, our hearts begin to overflow with gladness. Look there at the end of verse 3. He says, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. These saints are singing that they are glad even as they recount something that God did in the past. They are presently glad reflecting on what God had done for them. Even as the Old Testament saints make their way up to Jerusalem, they remember the deeds that God has done for them. What they're doing is they're preparing their hearts. They're preparing their minds for worship when they arrive in Jerusalem. And so how much more so for us who live this side of the cross, where God acted to restore his people once and for all, In the Lord Jesus, God has acted to set us free from slavery, not to a nation, but to sin. Sin and Satan. Jesus said that of himself when he came into Jerusalem. He came and he spoke and he said that he had come to proclaim good news to the poor. That he had been sent to proclaim liberty, freedom from captivity to the captives. Christians ought to be the most joyful people in the whole world. We have the greatest news in our hearts, don't we? But it's important to note that joy isn't the same thing as always having a smile on your face or never feeling sad or sorrowful. We'll hear about that in just a few verses time, right? No, joy is rather being contented in the Lord and trusting and hoping knowing that the outcome of our lives is secure. But it wasn't only God's people who acknowledged the great things that God had done for them. Jump back to verse 2 and look at that with me. Then they said, among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. So it wasn't just God's people that said that God had done great things. The nations joined in. It's kind of incredible to think, you know, it's one thing for Christians to say, That about the Lord that he has done great things for us or God's people in the Old Testament but not only them but others were even recognizing this so I wonder if you're here today and maybe you've been brought along maybe you're not a Christian do you see that God has done amazing things for us the church his people he has do you see a difference in us do you see a settled joy in our hearts. Do you ever wonder why do Christians sing whenever they get together each week? They sing songs to one another. It's because we're filled with joy. We're filled with gladness about the amazing news that God sent his son to deliver us, to restore us and to save us. So we are excited when we gather together every week to spend time singing about what God has done. I do hope That non-Christians that are around us, brothers and sisters, that they see this and they think God has done something amazing for that person. Maybe they don't know what it is yet, but we can tell them. God has done something wonderful for these people because they act joyful and they seem like they genuinely mean it. So as as a church, that's what we should pray for. That's what we should hope that people see about us. Because that is our story. God has Done great deeds for us. When non Christians that have known you for a long time, maybe they've known you since before you became a Christian, have they seen that change in your life? They should have done. They should have seen that your fortunes have been transformed. Especially if they've known you for a long time, since before you became a Christian, because They should be able to think, I remember when that person wasn't a Christian and I remember what they were like before. But to see them now, it's actually quite amazing. I want to share one example of how that happened in my own life. It was shortly after I had become a Christian at 23 years old and I vividly remember this conversation. I had a a friend from school and I was eager to tell them about what God had done for me. My Christian friends were encouraging me, you got to tell your friends, you got to share with your friends about the good things that God has done for you. And my life had changed quite a lot, and so I, I met up with a friend, I'd known her for about 10 years, and I was excited to tell her about what Jesus had done in my life. But before I even could get a word out about that, she said, you know, that, that Christian thing has really worked out for you. And I was like, what? That's a bit weird. I mean, like, it felt like a softball. I was excited. I was like, well, well, tell me what you mean. That's, you know, that's quite a strange thing to say. And she said, well, you you just seem much happier. And before I became a Christian, I had really struggled with depression. I had struggled with fighting uh, sad thoughts and dark thoughts. And she had seen that becoming a Christian had given me gladness. It was really, I was, so, I was so thankful. And I said, well, yeah, I am really joyful. I am glad. And I can tell you why, because there's good news. And I was able to tell her that Jesus had transformed my life. I hope and pray that you will have a similar experience as non-Christians around you ask you, what, what gives you so much joy or what gives you so much confidence? What makes you feel that way? The work of God in our lives should be evident even to our non-Christian friends. So here in this first stanza of Psalm 126, we see laughter. We see joy. We see gladness. As the psalmist and those that sing this psalm remember what God has done, they have a joyful reminder But then you come to verse four, and things change quite dramatically. Look at verses four, five, and six. The psalmist changes from a reminder to a request. Look at verse four. It's quite a surprising request, isn't it? Because it's for God to restore their fortunes. And you're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, didn't you just sing that God has done this already? We just sang just a couple seconds ago when God had restored our fortunes. So which is it? Had God restored their fortunes or had he not? Well, I'm so glad that this verse is here because it reminds me that this is just like my life, right? The weather changes dramatically quickly in my life. My emotional weather, I I mean. God has already done a great thing for me, but there are days when it doesn't feel like it. There are days when I am desperate and needy for the Lord to do once again what he had already done. God had restored them, but they recognized they needed more of it. They needed further restoration. How true is that for you and I, brothers and sisters, even as we get to look back on the greatest deed that God has done or ever will do in the cross you feel this way don't you we live in this astonishing time when we can rejoice in the gospel but we also know that we desperately need restoring once again we can rejoice in knowing that God had sent his son Jesus came God's son came in the flesh he lived for us He died the death that we deserve as our substitute. He satisfied completely God's wrath against our sin. He rose again from the dead, victorious over Satan and sin and death. And for us, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we can rejoice in the fact that our debt has been canceled. Our sins have been cleansed. We've been forgiven. We're now counted righteous. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit within us. We've been blessed with every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And that we're seated with Christ there too. We could go on and on about all the glories of the blessings that have been accomplished at the cross. They're all true. They're all wonderful. We should remember them. And yet we still live in this fallen world, don't we? We still long for the restoration of our bodies. We still long to be freed From the flesh and its sinful desires. We long for restoration to be fulfilled completely. Where we won't be sick ever again. Where there'll be never another tear shed. We won't have any sorrow anymore. Mourning will pass away. We're desperate for that day. Are we not? This psalm powerfully mirrors our reality. Even today, doesn't it? That on the one hand, we joyfully proclaim God's mighty deeds, his great deeds on our behalf to restore us. But on the other hand, we desperately cry out for God to restore us again. That's what verse 4 and 5 and 6 are all about. You know, some people, even Christians, are tempted to believe that the life of faith is a life that should be all joy and no sorrow. But that's just simply not true it's not true to our experience and it's not true to what the scriptures teach either just as we see here in Psalm 126 Psalms like this encourage me as there are days when I feel that I need to be restored days when I feel deep sorrow and grief and sadness days when I want God to encourage me once again and restore me. The psalmist here he makes the request for God to restore their fortunes, but he uses two very interesting and contrasting pictures to demonstrate what God's acting to restore them would look like. These you can find in verses four and then this, the second one is in five and six. So first look at verse four. He says, Restore our fortunes like streams in the Nageb. Now, that might sound strange to you if you don't know what the Negev is, but the Negev was just the southern part of south of Israel that was just a a desert. It was a, a dry desert region. We don't need to look far around us out the window to see dry desert regions, do we? It was so dry there that there was no life. Nothing could grow in this region. But on odd occasions, there would be flash floods and storms, and the dry rocky land would become flooded with water and life once again. This is true here in the Emirates as well. You know, when we were growing up in Dubai, it would maybe rain once, perhaps twice a year. It would just be a flash flood. Sometimes it didn't rain at all, but on those years when there was two portions of rain were amazing. The reason it was amazing was because the, the rain that flowed down would fill up the streets. There would be streams in Jumeirah Beach Road and al Wassel Road, which meant school was closed. It was wonderful. But it was also wonderful because it meant that the wadis would also be filled. And I remember after it would rain, if we would go out to the wadis, even just a day or two after it had rained, the wadis would be filled with water. There would be streams flowing in the desert. It was incredible. And it wasn't just that there were streams, there were pools, we could jump from the rocks into the pools, but there was also life. There was greenery where there had been nothing before. There were even fish. I was like, where did the fish come from? How did they get, were they in the rain? I don't know. It's weird. Uh There were tadpoles. You get the idea, though. That a place that there had been no life, that had been purely dry, was now flowing with water and life. And this is what the psalmist is crying out for. He's saying that like the desert wadis, our spiritual lives can be rain-filled once again. That they can change from desert dry and arid to being filled with rain and filled with life. And we can cry out to the Lord to restore our fortunes like this as well. Like streams in the desert, breathing life into our dry and weary souls. Seasons of spiritual dryness are hard when we feel spiritually lifeless, but we can ask God to restore our fortunes. We can ask God to soften our hearts once again. We can go back to his word and ask that he would open it up to us to help us to behold marvelous things in it. Like King David, we can cry out to the Lord to restore to us the joy of our salvation once again and to uphold us by his spirit. But, you know this psalm is not primarily about personal restoration in fact if you look at this verse these verses until this point it's been our mouths our tongues our fortunes this is God's people together recounting God's goodness to them in the past and asking for him to restore their fortunes once again in the future and so let me ask do you pray this kind of prayer I hope that after today, if you haven't been, that you will begin to do that. Pray for God to be at work in our church in Covenant Hope. Ask for him to refresh and restore the members of this church. That together as a community, we would be filled with spiritual life and vitality. And pray not just for us as a church, but for brothers and sisters across this city. For churches around the UAE and around the world. We try to model this kind of prayer every week in our pastoral prayer. Praying not only for our church and its members, but also for pastors and churches in places near and far as well. And we also pray for places that are barren, that are arid, that have no life. Places where there are no churches. And we pray that God would rain down blessings on them too. Jesus actually taught us to pray this way. You'll all remember the Lord's Prayer, I'm sure, that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer for spiritual restoration, for his kingdom to come on earth, and his will to be done. And so we saw the first picture of God's restoration is one of immediate, radical transformation. A flash flood in a desert place that brings life almost overnight. It's clearly an act of God. It's almost supernatural and instantaneous in its results. God can do that. God sometimes does do that. And here we're encouraged to pray for it. We're encouraged to pray, Lord... Bring revival, bring restoration, bring revival in the UAE, bring it in Dubai, bring it in the Middle East. Bring life to what is dead and barren. And at times throughout history, God has answered those prayers from his people. God has worked in astonishing ways to bring about revivals of religion and to transform a lot of people very quickly to save them. There's an example in the Bible, a whole book is dedicated to it. The book of Jonah in the Old Testament where Jonah goes to 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 a wicked city called Nineveh and the whole city repents and turns to God and is saved from imminent destruction immediately. Isn't that incredible? Our God can do that. Let's be bold and ask for that kind of work of the Lord in our lives, in our church, in our land. But the very last two verses, verses 5 and 6, they picture restoration dramatically differently. Look there at verses 5 and 6. Sometimes, and I would say more often than not, the path to restoration is slower. It's more ordinary. It's not really astonishing. It's like a farmer. Sowing a seed and reaping a harvest. Sowing seeds doesn't show immediate fruit. No, we plant, we wait, we trust that God will provide the growth. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes faith to be a farmer. But the farmer plants, knowing that when the harvest comes, it will bring shouts of joy with it. Notice the picture here, though, is not just sowing and reaping. The description is that they are sowing in tears and that they're going out with weeping. These farmers are sorrowful. Tears and weeping are often our experience, aren't they? And they're often appropriate, especially when we see the presence of sin in our lives, in the lives of those around us, and when it affects us. When we see our need for God's restoring power in our own lives, and in our families, and in our church, it's appropriate to to mourn, to grieve, to be sorrowful, to weep. There is such a thing as godly grief. Grieving over our sin, which leads to repentance, or grief over other people's sin. And praying for them to be restored you know the Lord Jesus he wept as he approached Jerusalem he wept over that city for their sin for their rejection of him for their hardness of heart he wept when his friend Lazarus grew sick and died which of course sin is the cause of sickness and death in the world Jesus is called in fact Not a man of joy, he's called a man of sorrows in Scripture. He's a man acquainted with grief. And on the night that he was betrayed, he said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Jesus knew that he would endure the curse of sin at the cross. He knew what lay before him. It was there that he would begin to restore all that had been lost, at the fall when Adam and Eve sinned against God when brokenness entered the world at the cross Jesus set off a chain reaction which would lead to the final and full complete restoration of a new creation Jesus took the judgment of sin on himself he took God's wrath and bore it in his body on the cross he endured death to pay for the sins of his people he did it for the joy of That was set before him, not in the moment, the joy that was to come when he would rise triumphant from the grave, when he would restore everyone who turned to him in faith and repentance. And so my non-Christian friend, you must see that all is not right in the world, don't you? You must see that all is not right in your own life. You must see that you need restoration from your sin and from all of sin's devastating effects in our world around us. And Jesus has made a way for anyone to be restored simply we turn from our sins we turn to him in faith and we call on his name and we will be saved so if you're here and you're not a Christian I plead with you turn to Christ today and be restored and look forward to the final restoration at the end of the age so you see faith isn't Never, ever feeling sorrowful. Faith isn't not feeling sad. It's living in confidence of a day that is to come when all things will be restored fully. And that's why in our services, at times, we include songs that sound sorrowful. Songs in a minor key. They're not all uplifting, joyful songs. Sometimes we sing songs like, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul that recognizes that life is hard, it's full of sorrows, it's gloomy, it's full of tears. You don't have to put on a fake happy face to come to church each week because God invites us to come to him and to cry out to him. Restore me once again, Lord. Restore me once again. The apostle Paul expresses this hope in the midst of sorrow in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 he says we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now and not only creation but we ourselves that's we Christians who have the first fruits of the spirit we groan inwardly we grieve as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies and in this hope we were saved. This is the tension that comes with living between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. We are rejoicing and we are glad, but we are sorrowful and grieving and groaning and waiting for him to return. We sow in tears now in eager anticipation of the joy that we will experience then. And so let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, allow your present sorrows to do work for you. Don't waste your sorrows. Allow them to drive you to prayer for God's restoration and allow your sorrows to help you fix your mind on the day that is to come when we'll have a harvest of joy with Christ Jesus. Psalm 126 isn't simply a song for God's Old Testament people on the road to Jerusalem but it's for all of God's people on the pilgrimage of faith to the heavenly Jerusalem, the one that is above, that is to come, the Zion from above. We just read about that in Revelation verse, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Look back there with me. This is that city that we're headed for. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, that's the Lord Jesus. He says, behold, I am making all things new. That day is coming. It will be here soon. When the Lord Jesus will wipe away our tears and our sorrow, and the new creation will come in, we'll be finally and fully restored for all eternity long. Jesus is making all things new. Psalm 126 reminds us of what the Lord has done for his people, and he has done great things. He's reminded us of the finished work of Christ, our crucified and risen Savior who has begun the work of restoring his people by conquering sin and death. And we're encouraged also by Psalm 126 to call on the Lord to complete that work, to send streams of water in the desert, to wipe away every tear, to bring in the harvest of joy and laughter and gladness for his people. Oh, what a glorious day that will be, brothers and sisters. Live for that day.